Well, good evening again, everybody. We're going to be back in Genesis 19 tonight. Uh, I've entitled the message, Leaving Your Heart in a Doomed World, which I'll explain later as we move on through our text. So if you can turn to Genesis 19 tonight. Uh, well, last week we started off in verse 1, and we worked our way all the way up to verse 14. And we're going to be picking up at 15 and ending about 29 before um, we get to Lot and his daughters. So uh, why don't I pray real quick and we can get started. We'll go ahead and recap the uh, previous part of the chapter that we went over last week, and then we'll move forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is so clear. It's so clear about our need and our condition. It's so clear about the desperate situation that we are in apart from Christ. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes and help us to see through this story uh, the realities um, that are behind it that are true, not just for these people, but also for every person. And would you just uh, show us our need to, to know Christ and to make him known? Amen. So we looked last time at the carnality and the compromise and the worldliness of Abraham's nephew Lot as he's living very comfortably with these uh, wicked sinners in the city of Sodom. And we saw that Lot is a prime example of believers who are so influenced by the world that their witness is compromised and their effect effectiveness in this world is minimized. He's a cautionary tale. He's not a fairy tale. This is a true story. This is real history. But it is a cautionary tale for believers. He is an example of faith. He is not an example of living. He is, the Bible's way of saying, you don't want to be this believer. Lot wanted to be popular and inoffensive to the men of Sodom who were after these angelic guests that he was hosting in his, in his home. And so just to go through uh, what we went through last week uh, as far as the beginning of this chapter, I'm just going to read through it and just make a couple of comments just to recap where we've been. So in verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. So we saw that he is a prominent member, prominent figure of this community. This is where all the, the business people, all the judges, all the officials did business at the gate of the cities in the ancient world. And when Lot saw them, when he saw these two angels, these two um, angels who had manifested themselves as human men, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Lot knew the character of the men of this city, and he knew that it would be extremely dangerous for them to uh, be accessible and visible as visiting men in this city, that he knew what happened to men who visited this city. And so he insists that they spend the night at his house. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. I almost read that we will spend the night in Union Square. Um, no. <laughs> it would have been the same, uh, could have been the same situation. But we'll spend the night in the town square. And he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. He insisted, you cannot, as my guests, I cannot allow you to remain out here in public. You have to take shelter in my house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. This was the common custom of the day, to, to show hospitality to strangers. 
and to welcome them into your home, to take responsibility for them so that way they're not just out in the open, vulnerable to whatever may befall them. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. If it couldn't get any clearer, this is every man in Sodom, every male from the oldest to the young ones surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, saying him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. It's a scary situation. It's about to get really, really ugly. We talked last week about this word know, which is yada in the Hebrew, and it means to, uh, uh, intimacy at such a level that is only reserved really for a husband and a wife. It's a polite, modest way to, to talk about sexual relations between a husband and a wife. That's meant to be reserved for a holy matrimony. And it's a word that's even used to describe the love that God has for us, that this love is so intimate, it is so uh, personal, so great, so loving, that it's used that God even says that he foreknew us, that he, he knew us, he set his love on us before the foundation of the world, uh, if you're in Christ. And so this is what is happening right now. This is the situation that these two guests, these two angels are in at this man Lot's house, that there is this mob outside demanding that Lot hand them over to be gang raped by these men. And this uh, man, Abraham's nephew, went out, verse six, went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And so we see just by his, by his address, his addressing these, these wicked men as his brothers, that he has really found identity in this city, that he has so been assimil assimilated into the culture and into the fabric of this place that he is, he's so buddy-buddy, way too comfortable with these people that he calls them my brothers. But he's also a man of compromise and conflict because on the one hand, he's saying, I beg you, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. So he's also calling out their sin. But then in the next sentence, he says, behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So which is it? Do you not want them to act wickedly? Or are you gonna give them, are you gonna prostitute out your daughters for them in, in, in order to protect these guests? This type of compromise, this type of worldliness and carnality, it always uh, shows this inconsistency in your life. There is this great inconsistency. So which is it, Lot? And to so um, accommodate cultural, traditional customs over righteousness and your responsibility as a father to protect your children and your daughters, he has given in to the world. He's not thinking... Uh, with God's interests in mind. He's not thinking, what can I do to glorify God in this situation? What can I do to uh, protect my daughters? But what can I do in order to uh, keep the standard of what's socially acceptable in this place that I'm living? And so they say, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. 
So this is what happens when God's people try to accommodate the world, try to assimilate in the world, try to, try to become popular with the world in order to get them to like us so that maybe if they like us, they'll hear, uh, they'll be more likely to hear what we have to say. They won't hear it. They won't hear it. They will continue to reject it. And as soon as there's even the whiff of intolerance toward their sin, they'll turn. They'll turn on you. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they are now confirmed. They have confirmed themselves in their wickedness by their continual rejection. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, the men referring to these angels, these guests, and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And so this mob was so powerful, so violent, that it took this angelic miracle, in a sense. You'll see in the next sentence, it took this miracle in order to stop them, to save Lot's life even. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Even struck blind, they're still trying to satisfy their lusts. They're still going, still going. They will pass through every boundary and every obstacle in order to, to satisfy this, these sinful cravings that they have. And we talked last week about, you know, we, we don't need to work too hard in this church, at least, to prove the, the sinfulness of homosexuality. That it's, that it's not a sin because it, it hurts other people around them, though there is destructive consequences to any sin. Any violation of God's law, any violation of God's uh, design and intention for the world, uh, it does bring destructive consequences, but that's not primarily why it's wrong. It's wrong because if God is who God is, and God is sovereign and and he has authority over everything he's created, then he has the right to design human beings and purpose for human beings whatever he pleases. And it's not wrong because it hurts people primarily. It is wrong because it is contrary to God's design. It's contrary to God's intention. Um, it is a violation of, of the, the purpose for which he has created human sexuality to be productive, to be fruitful, and to be beautiful and even pleasurable. It's not that sex, you know, we have this, this concept in our culture of, you know, you're either for sex or, or, or you're anti-sex. It's sex is something that, human sexuality is something that God created to be beautiful and for an intended purpose. And so that's what is so wrong about this, what's so twisted and warped and perverted about this sin that's so characteristic of this city. And so then the men said, the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So this is the purpose for which they came. This is, they didn't just stroll in here. They're on a mission. They're on an errand. They're errand boys for the Lord. We have come to destroy this place. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They thought he was just joking, that he was just rambling on, oh yeah, there goes Lot, there goes my future father-in-law, always going on and on about judgment, always going on and on, on and on about this God or whoever he is. And that's what's so characteristic about unbelievers 
in every age and in every place. The warnings of judgment, the coming judgment of God is just a big joke to them. Well, one day it's not going to be so funny as it was not for these men. And we talked last time even about how in the church you will find Christians who will downplay the judgment of God and upplay the love of God. Now, we adore and cherish God for his love. The Bible is full of the promises, the wonderful promises of God's mercy and, and patience with sinners and the love that he has for them, a love, a love so great that he sent his own son to die and to be the savior of the world. But when you, you but we talk, you know, you have to play with a full deck. You have to talk about every, you have to acknowledge and you have to uh, revere and respect every part of who God says he is. Not that God is, is parts. Everything about God is who he is. God is love and he also is good. And his goodness demands that he have a righteous anger against sin. So we need to play, play, with, a, play with a full deck and we need to get a full picture of everything that God reveals himself to be. And so that's where we find ourselves uh, this evening as we continue on in verse 15. As God's justice and righteousness are put on devastating display as this story is famous and legendary now. And Lot and his wife are reluctant to let go of the glitter and the glamour and the attraction of Sodom. And so this is going to be our, our main point for tonight, that believers must have a loose grip on the things of this world if we are to follow the call of God in our lives. Believers must have a loose grip on this world if we are to follow the call of God in our lives. And so in verse 15, it continues after he's being mocked to scorn by his sons-in-law. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Lot, it's coming. It's coming fast. Now is the time. We've spent the night, as you've said. Now is the time you need to get out of here. Anyone who will listen to you, get them and get out of here. As the final dark night of Sodom came to an end, they insist that they escape. The maximum, again, the maximum capacity for sin has been reached in this city. And it's overripe for judgment. And so they make the move quickly and usher them out of the city. And there's this sense of urgency about them. And I just, I just thought as uh, I was going through this passage and looking at this, you know, is there an urgency about the warnings that we give about the gospel that we preach to our friends or our families? Is there a sense of this, you need to commit your life to Christ now. You need to escape the judgment of God now. Because it's not that God's judgment is coming. It is hanging over, hanging over you like a sword on a thread about to drop. Do we feel that, that urgency when we uh, relate to people that we know that are outside of Christ? Everyone who's known the grace of God and the, the, the beauty and the mercy of having your sins forgiven should want that for other people too. But like Lot... And like his wife, when our hearts are tied to the things of this world, we're not desperate for other people's souls. When we're so uh, caught up in just the business as usualness about our lives, and when we're, we're desensitized to the sin that's all around us, 
we're not in a hurry. We're, we're not pleading with people to be saved. Um, we're not in a hurry to be witnessing to our friends and family and letting everyone know in my apartment, apartment building or my job, hey, I'm a Christian, and you know what? We have the greatest message on planet Earth, and you need to hear it, and you need to respond to it. We're not in a hurry uh, when we're so weighed down by the things here on Earth. So uh, search your own hearts and your own lives. Um, are you telling people about Christ? Are you, uh, do you feel desperate for other people? And, you know, we think like, oh, well, I'm not gifted for evangelism. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't get up on a box and, and preach to other people on the street. Oh, that may not be your calling. That is true. Um, but I think more important than asking, you know, am I, am I gifted for this? Do I care? That's the question we should be asking. Do I care that this person may spend eternity in hell? Not am I, you know, is it my calling to talk to this person next to me or whatever? Yeah. Something for you to think about that really I think is, is pictured in the urgency of these angels as they're really trying to usher them out and get them to, 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 to safety from this wrath that's about to be poured out. But instead, we see instead of following this urgency and, and saying, oh, yes, we have to get out of here, Lot drags his feet. Verse 16, but he lingered. But he lingered. He already knows what's coming. He's already been extended this, this grace and this mercy. I think these three words tell us everything we need to know about the lukewarm state of Lot's heart. He's not in a rush to abandon his home, his possessions, his business affairs, the culture, or the allure of the city. His roots are planted deep. His heart is in Sodom. Again, Lot's a believer. This isn't just some reprobate. This is... This is God's man in this town, but his heart is still, is still tied down to this place. The, the social respectability and acceptance of evil in this place has wrapped its tentacles around his heart. Now, again, I think we need to understand Lot as a conflicted man, not just a man who's totally sold out for Sodom. He is a man of, of inner conflict. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament. You can go to the book of Revelation and just kind of work your way back. That helps. I mentioned last week that Second Peter is actually a great commentary on uh, the situation here with Lot and with Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're able to um, supplement this study with the reading of Second Peter. In verse 4 of chapter 2 of 2 Peter, it reads, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, righteous Lot, that's interesting, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So, in this passage, we see here that Lot is not completely sold out and just completely 
numb or uh, comfortable or approving of what's going on in this place. He feels the inner conflict because that's the, the Holy Spirit pressing on his conscience, pressing that, don't, doesn't it bother you what is going on around you? And it does. The text here says that it does, but he still, there's still this allure. There's still this pull that he wants to just settle comfortably, try to be, he just wants to try to be comfortable in this type of environment. He didn't really, and because of this, he didn't really comprehend the magnitude of the, of the urgency that was needed for them to get out. And our hearts, just like Lot's, tend to linger in this world um, and that we don't feel the urgency of the need of salvation and of the coming judgment that we just, are, we don't see right now, but we know that it's coming. So the men, going back to Genesis 19, the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. So they really seized them, took them by the hand forcefully. You are lingering. You are taking too long. You're, I know that your heart is in the city. I have to get you out here and it's going to be abrupt. It's going to be arresting and uncomfortable. And frankly, you're not going to be ready for it. But out of my mercy, I'm getting you out of this place. And so as he's telling them to escape, we have to consider kind of some, some, at least something basic about the geography of this land. So they're in a valley, right? These cities that are about to be destroyed are at a lower elevation. And he's saying escape to these hills, higher elevation. So this judgment is about to come and essentially wipe out this entire valley. It's not just Sodom and Gomorrah. There are three other cities that are on this itinerary of destruction. And so I don't want to, we have to be very careful about over-spiritualizing our reading of the scriptures, especially reading these narratives. Um, but it has been pointed out, I just thought it not, an interesting observation that the low, um, the low living and the gutter living of these cities is really pictured in the fact that they're in this valley, they're deep in this valley, and that God's saying, you need to escape to higher ground. And that is where your safety is going to be. Again, we have to be careful about spiritualizing our interpretation of the scripture and, and reading things into it, but I just thought it an, uh, an interesting observation at least. Um, but you know what? Sometimes the mercy of God requires that we be brought out of worldly situations and temptations and practices by force, and it's uncomfortable. And there are certain things that we are not ready to give up. Yes, I, I, I'm so thankful for the forgiveness of my sins, but let me just hold on to this thing that I know may not make you that happy, God. And how many of us in this room has he just pulled out by force? And no, I wasn't ready. Too bad. I'm, I'm taking this away. This is, this is no longer a good presence. This is no longer productive. This is no longer bringing me glory in your life. I need to remove it. And I, or I need to remove you from it. And they probably would have been destroyed because they lingered so long and they were just taking their sweet old time in Sodom rather than getting out. And so he's telling them, he's giving them very clear instruction, get out of the city, get out of the valley, escape to these hills. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight 
and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city over here is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. What's amazing to me about this is that Lot does acknowledge that he's being shown mercy. God, you're not giving me what I deserve. That's what mercy is, withholding what someone deserves, withholding something that someone deserves. And so he knows, he has at least a basic understanding that God's being merciful for me, merciful to me. And yet we see him making this strange request. Uh, they gave him very clear instructions. Get out of the valley, flee to the hills. Don't be anywhere near the valley. Don't be within the blast radius of what is about to happen. And Lot, for whatever reason, didn't believe that he could safely reach this place of refuge that God had prepared for him. He doubts. He doubts God. He had every reason to believe that God would, would make it possible for him to escape. But for whatever reason, he doubts, saying, I can't do it, God. I can't do it. I, I'm not going to make it in time. I'm not going to make it to where you've, uh, the place that you've prepared for me. So really, it's in his weakness and in his doubt of God that he asks instead for permission to seek safety in one of these nearby cities. Now, again, Sodom and Gomorrah are just two of the cities of this valley. There's five of them. And one of them is this city that he's asking. And we have every reason to believe that this city was just as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah. Just He's, he makes this emphasis that, oh, it's just a smaller city. It's not as big and, you know, it's not, it's not Los Angeles. It's just, you know, it's just Las Vegas. You know, it's just a little one. It's, it's not as bad as Sodom. It's, it's, it's not the best, but it's, it's better. It's just a little city. He's, his heart is still in this place. He still wants to remain a part of everything that's going on in this place. Even with his, conscious, his conscience eating away at him, he still wants to be a part of it. This smaller city that's on schedule for destruction, let me go there instead. He's a prototype, a prototypical worldly believer pushing the bounds of what he can get away with. Not worried about what's gonna bring God the most glory, but what's the, what's the closest to sin that I can get without crossing the line? Slow to trust and obey God, quick to prioritize comfort and self-interest instead of self-denial. He's as carnal as a believer can be and still be a believer. So if I'm the angel, I'm hearing this and I'm thinking, okay, just let me get this straight. The sexual perversion and violence of these cities has reached such abysmal depths and the outcry against these cities has reached such astronomical heights that there is no other outcome but total destruction for these, place, for these places. And I have provided you a safe place of refuge that you can flee to. In fact, I have commanded you with unmistakable language to go there, and you have every reason to trust me that you're going to make it there safely. So I'm telling you, flee there without delay, without looking back, and instead of trust me in my divine rescue operation that I'm pulling off through these angels, you want to go to mini Sodom instead. It's a good thing I wasn't one of those angels. I would have said, you know what? I would have said, just stay. 
Just stay and see what happens. If you can't give up your status and your comfort and your possessions and whatever else you think is more valuable than obedience to God, you can just stay and see what becomes of them and you. If I was one of these angels, I'd be, I'd be looking at the Lord. I'm done with this witness, Your Honor. <laughs> just take him. Let him stay. But thankfully, the God of heaven, the perfect and righteous judge of all the earth, is so much more merciful and patient and long-suffering than I am. Verse 21, he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which if you're uh, using an ESV, you may have a little footnote at the bottom. It says, Zoar means little. Little city. Again, you remember in Genesis 18, one chapter prior to this, we had this exchange, this interaction between God and Abraham. And God revealed that he was about to wipe these places from the face of the earth. And Abraham, knowing that his nephew Lot is in Sodom, says, okay, what if you find 50 righteous people there? I'll spare it. If I find 50 righteous people, I'll spare the city. Well, what about 40? I'll spare it. And he works his way down to 10. He says, if there are even 10 righteous people in Sodom, I won't destroy the place. I'll leave it be for the sake of those people. Well, as it turns out, in Zoar, where Lot and his family would flee to, there would only be a handful of people, not even 10 righteous people, and the city's spared. The city which deserves the outpouring of God's righteous indignation just as much as Sodom and Gomorrah. And so even in the storm of the fury and the judgment and the rage, we see these rays of sunshine of God's loving kindness and his willingness to, to accommodate to the weakness of his people. And it goes to show what the presence, of, the presence of even one righteous person can do to a city, what it can spare a city from. You know, we think of the cities in our time and place that are infamous in their reputation for sin. I named a couple of them. It makes you wonder what righteous people are there, sh really shining as lights, not like Lot was, truly shining as lights for Christ and living as salt and light in this dark world in those places that God hasn't just completely wiped them out yet. And so I think in this account, we really see, again, Lot is a prime example of a person who God obviously, obviously counts righteous, not on the basis of works, not on the basis of human goodness, but on the basis of faith and faith alone. And the Bible is so honest with us. It's so, it's so true to life, so true to human life that it never paints these pictures of, of plaster saints. It always shows people, even God's people, honestly and at their worst. And we see that with Lot here. And that even at their worst, God shows them mercy. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then... The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley 
and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Everything, every person, even the crops that grew. I want to wipe this place from planet Earth where there's nothing left but just the memory of it. It's beyond, I mean, what happened on that day is beyond anything that you or, you or I can comprehend. There have been many attempts, as you can well imagine, to explain away this story as, oh, well, they were, they were just natural disasters or geological catastrophes or whatever, meteorological, whatever. And, well, whatever the case may be as far as those go, we know that there is no such thing as a natural disaster, right? As a purely natural disaster. There are disasters that happen in nature, but a disaster that is just purely an accident, that just happened by chance. There's no such thing. Every molecule in the universe is under the control and the authority of God. And this text tells us clear as day that the Lord is the one who did it. He is active in these verbs. He did it. He overthrew it. The Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire. And so rather than just, as has been suggested, just a, a, a volcano, volcanic eruption, you know, spewing out sulfuric gases and, and magma and lava and all this, it was actually truly the fires of hell raining down on planet Earth to destroy this place. He just unexisted them with fire. And there was nothing left but ash and smoke by the time he was through. You know what's even scarier than this scene? These people, these occupants, these residents of these cities, they went from fire to fire. That in the transition from this life into eternity, they only went from fire to fire. And there was nobody to say, oh, well, they died. Yes, they died a horrible death, but they're, they're in a better place now. It's not true. They were removed by means of fire only to enter an eternity of fire and sulfur and smoke and darkness that is so far beyond anything we could understand. And it's the terrifying destiny of anyone outside of the safety and mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. I don't care how good, humanly speaking, of a person they are. Because we, we don't, the Bible doesn't look at human goodness by comparing people with other people. It looks at human goodness on the basis of God's perfection, of his perfect righteousness and holiness, and by that standard, not one person passes. Every person falls short. It's a, it's, it's a scary thing to think about because we all have family and we all have friends who are outside of Christ. They know, they've heard the message, they reject it. Or maybe they don't know. And they're, you know, they're still living their lives in sin. There's still sin in their lives that makes them guilty before a holy God. And frankly, this is why it can be so difficult for people, humanly speaking, to believe this. Because if I believe that this is true, if I believe in Christ and, and acknowledge the fact that apart from Christ, I am on my way to hell, what does that mean for my parents who didn't believe? Well, that, if, if this is true, then what does this mean? I can't, I can't accept that. I can't accept the thought of, my, of my, you know, my loved one in hell. We need to be honest, and we need to take seriously this warning here. 
the warning of this story, the caution that this story is trying to shove it in our face, that you can escape the wrath of God. You don't have to spend eternity being punished for your sins. In Jesus' day, there were uh, some folks who approached him and asked him a theological question, a question about heaven, about what's going to happen after death. This person asked, Lord, will, it, will there be many or few that are saved in the end? Are there going to be a lot of people saved or are there only going to be a few people? And you know what he said to them? Enter at, you strive to enter at the narrow gate. He just ignored the question. You strive to enter at the narrow gate. It doesn't, you shouldn't be wondering if there are going to be many people saved or if there are going to be few people who are saved. The question that you need to be concerned with is, are you going to be saved? He always brings it back very personally. He doesn't allow people to just get off on general, vague religious conversations. What about you? Are you going to be saved on that day? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves and that we need to, to really be urgently reaching out in love to the people that we love, even to the people that aren't lovable. We need to be reaching out to them with the gospel. We don't, we, we're, we're not giddy to get up and talk about the fires of hell because we're so excited to see other people go there, but because we want to see people rescued from that. Do we want to see the, the branch that's in the, in the fire pit taken out before it gets burned? And you know what? God wants sinners to be saved too. Turn over to 2 Peter one more time with me. Chapter 3, the last chapter. As you're turning there, I'm just going to start reading in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Again, he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The judgment is coming, but God wishes it is the desire of his heart. Eventually, we will see what the outcome will be of God's ultimate will, of what will happen in the end. But the desire of God's heart, the sincere desire of his heart, is that sinners should repent and turn back to him in faith and in love. He even asks in the, the prophet Ezekiel, do I, does the Lord take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Do I take pleasure? Do I get my jollies from sinners getting what they deserve? I don't, de I don't delight in the death of anyone. He answers his own question. I don't delight in the death of anyone. His holiness and his righteousness demand that sin be paid for and punished. And they will be one way or other. You're either going to pay for your sins in hell or they'll be paid on the cross. And you, that can, you can benefit from that by faith and faith alone. And that's God's desire, that that would be the case. You know, just thinking about this picture of, uh, this terrifying picture of judgment, it, it really brings to mind on the opposite end of this, when Moses wanted to see 
not you, wanted to see the glory and the wrath, not the glory, not the wrath, the glory and the beauty of the Lord. And he said, Lord, show me your glory. Show me. And he said, let me put you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by, I will, I will veil your face. I will, I will put so many barriers so that just so you can survive. And I will pass by and I will allow you to, to get a, a peak, almost with like these, you ever uh, see a solar eclipse and they give you those sunglasses so that you can stare at the sun? I mean, that to the nth degree. I will give you a tiny glimpse, a peek at the backside of my glory. And Moses saw it. And the disciples saw it too, the inner circle of disciples, when they went up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus was transfigured before that, meaning his appearance just changed. Almost, you ever see a water balloon? You see, ever see those slow motion videos of water balloons when you pop it and the whole, you, this tiny little prick and the entire thing just comes undone and the water just bursts out. Jesus gave the, the inner circle of disciples a tiny glimpse of his glory. And Moses and Elijah were standing right there with him. And they saw it with their own eyes. That's why John was able to see. We say we beheld his glory. We saw it with our own eyes. We are witnesses. We saw it. That's nothing compared to what we're going to see in heaven. That's nothing compared to the vision of Christ, the face of God that we are going to see in Christ when this life is over. And unfortunately, the same is true conversely with this image of Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of the valley. That this doesn't even compare to the horror and the, the rage and the fury and the anger that God has against sin, and rightfully so, because he's a good God, and a good God can't tolerate evil. Verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him, going back to Genesis 19, but Lot's wife behind him, behind him, they were all taken out at the same time. She's behind him. Looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. I entitled the message, Leaving Your Heart in a Doomed World. Many of you are familiar with uh, Tony Bennett, and some of you know his signature song, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. That is Lot's wife. Her feet left, but her heart never left the city. She looked back with longing eyes as she was fleeing. And so, I mean, so much so that Moses even makes it a point to mention it at all. Moses, who authored the book of Genesis, that she was behind him. So if Lot was dragging his feet, how much more so his wife, that she is just, she just can't get out of this city any slower and she still looks behind him, exactly what the angels told her not to do. She couldn't help herself. Her heart was still in Sodom. Her heart never left Sodom. And even in, within the catastrophe all around her and the judgment that's being poured out and unleashed on this city, she still looks back and she becomes a monument to the judgment of God. God is patient, but his patience is not infinite. His patience does have a limit. 
God is merciful, but he will not be exploited, and he should not be presumed upon. Oh, well, if Locke got away, who knows what I could get away with? Who knows what carnalities I can get away with and still rely on God's mercy? I'll repent later, and you know what? God's just going to get me covered. I can sin. I can get as close to the line as I want, and you know what? God's just not going to let me go over You know, what was said of the two criminals who hung on their crosses next to Jesus can be said of Lot and his wife. One was saved so that no one would despair, but only one so that none would presume. We're not to take our cue from Lot and his wife. We are to look at them with caution. They're signposts to us. Don't be like this couple. And the condition of her heart truly was revealed when she looked back. So she confirms herself in the hardness of her heart, and she ultimately subjects herself to this wrath. Imagine being taken by the hand by an angel to escape the wrath, being so close, and you just perish still. I warn you, if you're resisting the call of God to believe in Jesus Christ, if you are continuously refusing to commit your life to him, you're putting the Lord to the test. And the day may come when God just confirms you in your resistance, confirms you in the hardness of your heart, and, you will, and he allows you to continue in unbelief until you take that step into eternity. Today is the, the day of salvation, Right? Luke 17, turn with me real quick. We'll make a couple more stops in the New Testament and then we'll be done. Luke 17. Just as it was, verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Sot went out from Lot, uh, when the on the day when Lot went out from Sodom. Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jumping to verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. I mean, to be remembered, I mean, there are many people whose lives are, recount are recounted in the Old Testament. Jesus remembers Lot's wife and uses her as an example. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. If you're trying to hold on so strongly to the things of this world and the comfy life that you're living and not being sold out for Christ, it's not going to work out so well. But if you're willing to give up your life, to commit your life to Christ, that is the person who's going to keep it. That's the person who will not have any regrets on the last day. And, you know, as we, as we continue to think about this city, the city that's characterized by homosexual sin, 
by homosexual violence even. And we think about, we asked, we, last week we talked about degrees of sin. Are some sins worse than others? And we said, well, yes, and I, well, I gave the answer, at least my understanding, yes and no. Yes, all sins are equal in the sense that it only takes one sin to go to hell. All sin makes you guilty before God. Guilt, there are no, there are no degrees of guilt. You're either guilty or you're not. But there are sins that are more offensive to God, that are so, uh, so perverse, so warped, such a distortion of God's intent for human life that it does, in a sense, stink to him, calls them abominations. They're disgusting to him. And that homosexuality is one of those sins. It does identify that sin very strongly. Um, but, you know, thinking about this, um, the worst sins don't happen in gay clubs or, or dark hotel or motel rooms or whatever or in the, the, the dirty, seedy places of the world. Matthew 10 at least tells me where the worst sins are committed. And they're not in places like this. And that's not to minimize the sexual immorality or homosexual immorality. That's not to minimize it at all. But in Matthew 10, let's see. Sorry, Matthew 11, Matthew 11. Got you turning all over the place. Verse 20, then he, he being Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The worst sin you could possibly commit is not committed in these dirty, seedy places of the world. They're committed in church. They're committed in church when the word of God is preached, when the gospel is explained clearly, when the offer of the forgiveness of sins is extended to you, and you refuse to repent, you refuse to believe in Christ, you refuse to commit your life to him. That is the worst thing you could do, to have the knowledge of Christ and to reject it. That is scarier than the judgment that was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, not to minimize that. But at least as far as I can tell from Jesus' own mouth, that it is the knowledge of the truth and the fullness of the knowledge of who God is in Christ and the rejection of that that, is, that far exceeds anything else. And so, verse 27, back in Genesis 19, I'll just continue to read it just to finish us up. And Abraham went early in the morning 
to the place where he had stood before the Lord. This is where he had that conversation with God about, well, if there's only, if there's only such and such amount of people, will you spare them? To the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Abraham had asked the million dollar question in chapter 18. When he's negotiating this, uh, the safety of his nephew, he asks, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He's looking down into the valley and he has his answer that God is just, that it is because of God's justice that this place was wiped out. He didn't know just how just and how righteous God was. And he wouldn't have been able to understand prior to this destruction. Now he understands in a way that would have been impossible before. And so what used to be this massive outcry against the city that rose to heaven is now this tower of black smoke that is just rising higher and higher and higher. You know, when we, on the last day, are witnesses to the final judgment of the ungodly and the wicked, when we see the destiny that so many are going to enter, just as Abraham looked out and was just in awe of this sight of what was once this, these, this metropolis, multiple metropolis, gone, up in a tower of smoke. When we're looking at that sight on the last day, I don't think that we're going to be thinking, yeah, those sinners got what they deserved. You know, those, those, those people who are so other than us, so, so different in their sins than we are, of course, God's justice and holiness will be vindicated on that day. And in that sense, we will be celebrated, not for our sake, not because we think that we are better than other people, because surely we are not, but because God is finally getting the vindication of his holiness and is triumphing over his enemies, really. But I think what we are going to be thinking on that day is, that could have been us. That should have been me. And so we must be urgent in our evangelism. We must be urgent to reach out to the people who are lost, that the New Testament says are under the power of Satan. Not that everyone's running around joining Satanist clubs, but they're doing exactly what Satan wants them to do and doing what he does. And what he does best is love himself. This world is characterized by a love of self, not a love of God. And so we need to reach out to people of every type of sin. And we need to, we need to understand that, that people, whatever the sins they are doing, if it were not for the grace of God, there go I. Who's to say I wouldn't be partaking in whatever other sins people are doing? And so with that in mind, we need to we need to ask ourselves, do I care enough to reach out to this person? Do I care enough? Do I love this person enough to warn them about uh, where they could be spending their eternity? You know, 
to ask the question five seconds after you die, where will you be? And next week we'll get into uh, the remaining portion of chapter 19. So, oh yeah, two weeks, yeah. So not next week, the following week after that. Yes, thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful love that you've shown to us to even extend the offer of grace, to extend the offer of mercy, to extend the offer of escape from your wrath, which is so righteous, which we so deserve. And Lord, you even tell us that you don't overlook sin, that you don't just give us a pass when, we, when our sins are forgiven, but that you take our sins from us, you remove them from us, and you place them on Christ as he hung on that cross and absorbed the wrath that was meant for us. And this was all by you, your design. Your, this was your plan all along, Lord. Your great love for us. The great love that doesn't wish anybody to perish, but that all should reach repentance. And Lord, would you put that great love in our hearts so that we can reach out as lights and salt in this dark and dying world to reach out with love, that we'd be... Uh, characterized by love, the love that we have for people. Lord, may it, be true, may it be true in our lives. Help us to have a loose grip on the things of this world so that we can live lives that make you happy and bring you glory and to see other people come to the knowledge of Christ. Amen.